Hello, I'm Jensen Beeler. And I'm Quentin Wilson. And together we are the Two Enthusiast Podcast. Two Enthusiast Podcast. The motorcycle industry's hottest podcast. It is hot. Yeah. It is sweaty balls hot here. It's on fire. In fuego. Oh, the little emoji. We'll have the little fire emoji. Yeah. Wish we could impart that over our voices. Emojis don't work in podcasts. <laughs> you know what does work, Quentin? AGV and Dainese, because they are bringing you this episode <laughs> with Dainese D stores in San Francisco, Orange County, Chicago, and now also Orlando and New York, uh, with stores still to come in Los Angeles as well. Nice. But yeah, I, I talked to them the other day, and it sounds like New York store will be this week as that, of this recording. Awesome. So. Yeah. Just, just taking over the world. Uh, Quentin, we are, we are hot and sweaty because... We are in the midst of uh, a little project that I think I want to tease on the podcast, but I'm not sure like I want to get into it too far yet. I want to save that for some future shows, but we are doing a superbike shootout. Tease, please. Yeah, it's our first, it's Asphalt Rubber's first like proper bike shootout thing. Usually we leave that for the the big magazines, but I kind of wanted to to get in the mix, do something a little bit different. and. well, and what way are you going to do different? Well, so so most of the shootouts you'll see, like they get all the bikes on the track, or they try to get all the bikes. And that's Line part, them all up. That's part of the issue. It's like you try to get all the manufacturers at one track day or one track on a single time and get them all around and different riders. Everyone's kind of got like a different spin on it, but more or less that's the format. And like one of the things like my OCD just doesn't like, or or maybe maybe it's not my OCD, it's just my like general pickiness. But, like, there's always, like, a manufacturer or two that's missing. And I understand, like, especially now being, like, kind of into the process. Like, it's hard coordinating <laughs> all the schedules of, you know, however many superbike manufacturers there are. Is it schedules that you're coordinating? Is that what's hard? <laughs> let's just let's just say it's schedules and, yeah. and leave that for, for a future topic. It but, is it is schedules when you think about it from a global standpoint. But, yeah. Yeah, sure. But it is it is hard. Like, like you know, you get eight different players all trying to have... Um, you know, uh, bikes available and you have multiple publications with demands and you throw into that the normal press requests. And we don't even think about this very often, but there's like movie requests and, and, you know, other things outside of just journalistic media that, that pull on, um, a manufacturer's resources and press fleet. So it's hard to get that all figured out. So I came up with kind of a more, what I thought would be an easier approach of doing multiple day reviews, but two bikes at a time. And so we'd have two bikes on the track, review those bikes, and whichever bike we kind of deem the winner goes on to the next round. It's, it all stemmed from kind of my um, dispassion for Ma- March Madness, but I love like the whole like in March, everyone's got their brackets going on. And this is probably, I'm looking like, like I'm, I'm looking at, I don't, I'm not passionate about March Madness at all, but that's where I yeah, got the idea okay. from. I'm looking at you and you're just like glazed over like yeah, March right. Madness. Is it's that sports ball? I haven't seen hockey played in a long time, so right. I don't know anything about right. what you're talking about. Yeah, I'm sure. Um, they scored another touchdown at the, all the touchdowns. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. (laughs) I hope they Uh, all get home runs. It was, it was really just as an aside, it was really fun explaining to you America's cup earlier today. I can tell you your passion for that sport is also growing. It's interesting. It is interesting. I think there's a lot, there's a lot going on there in that. Like if you got, if you got the feeling that I'm not into it, I mean, the fact that I even know anything about it. I, I I kind of I would like to be on one of the, the the thing is for me for something like that I have to be there. Same goes with sports ball. 
put me in front of whatever field, I could probably tolerate cricket. If, if you sit n- somebody next to me that can help explain, can you imagine the questions I ask? And I, it's still to this day when I go to a hockey game and I actually do go to uh, the local Winterhawks hockey games or soccer, it's so much better when I know what's going on. For the most part, I don't because these games are filled with bullshit rules and I don't really appreciate that and all the team play BS, whereas I'm much more of a, did the one person run faster than the other? Okay, good. Did the one racer beat all the other racers on the clock? Okay, good, right? That's very clear to me. So stick and ball sports lie within that. The boat racing is interesting because it's a team of people on one thing, so it becomes one thing. Right. And I like that. That's an interesting dynamic. But I'd have to be there. I'd really want to be there. Seeing it on TV is okay, but if you're there, then you kind of understand the dynamics more. And for hearing it from you, again, having an expert being able to explain how it works because otherwise it's just a boat slowly going through the ocean and even though i don't care how fast they make it look on tv i'm going 180 miles an hour on a sport bike i'm not impressed by however many knots you got on the water right i'm just not unless i'm there because then holy shit i'd be scared to death being on one of those things that's about to pitch itself into the ocean at whatever it is what is the max speed on those things 35 40 miles an hour um, they can get up to 40 50 knots yeah, yeah. that's gnarly, I mean, it's, right mm. i i understand that having done that on even on jet skis you don't want to hit that water it's like hitting concrete no. it's gnarly so um yeah i got to be there to to be into it and then and the same goes with march madness I'm whatever right i'm not i'm not into that that much yeah yeah i'm not into the the basketballs the college basketball as much but sailing is a sport that's near and dear to my heart and it's interesting for me to watch america's cup and draw analogies to to motorcycle racing um it's an it's a sport that's had to evolve a lot in the last mm, decade or two because there's technology that goes into it a lot more i mean i'm sure there's plenty of technology goes into making a bat making a ball and making the training systems that get the people to be better than what they are or had been in, in years past. But there's nothing like actually having to have a machine involved, like a big, complicated machine, to then push technology forward. Right. And I think, I think part of it, too, is in that time frame for, for, for sailing, it's not like, oh, it's evolved and things are a little bit quicker. It is, it is taken a quantum leap forward and revolutionized the sport. And a lot of that's Larry Ellison and Oracle and, and, and them being involved with the series. And that's on the technical end for just like the boats and the teams, but also understanding the media. And that's where I get into it with with motorcycling, where they've really turned the sport upside down on how they approach social media and how they're dealing with their media partners and how they're doing live events and how can they keep this. Like you were saying, like, oh, didn't they just do this last year? It's like, well, no, the, the America's Cup itself is every few years, three to four years typically. But they've figured out like, hey, we need to make sure like interest is in this like perpetually. We need to have like... Uh, a build-up series that travels around the world and gets people locally interest and have that be a year-long, every-year kind of thing. They just did, uh, I think they're working with Red Bull to do like a development cup to to help you know bring in new talent into the sport. So they're looking at a lot of different aspects on how to change the sport for kind of the modern day, how to get youth involved, how to cut costs, how to get more media exposure, how to get it to be a better advertising experience for brands that are involved. And I sit there and I go like, hmm, you know, motorcycle racing are you paying attention because i don't see especially road racing i don't see it evolving in the same way or or having like a a, almost a clean slate of evolution in the same way that like something like america's cup has has done 
And that to me is really, really interesting, at least relevant to, to what you and I are discussing. Yeah, sure. And to see a, such large outside industry sponsorship, it's not like the, the things on the sides of those boats are boat companies and no. stuff, you know, accoutrement for boats. It's Oracle. It's is Red Bull involved? Red Bull's involved. Uh, BMW, Maserati. I saw him one. Airbus, Maserati. Yeah. Uh, I'm trying to think who the watch sponsor is. Uh, Omega. Tissot? No, it's not, not Tissot. Tissot. Okay. Not not Tiso. Tiso. Oh, Nikki, we miss you. Um, but it, Rolex yeah. has always been involved. Yeah, you know, for you sure. think of and these. That, that's high level. These brands want to. They want to be associated international with international high level, and then it's eyeballs all over the world, guaranteed. Right. And it transcends just that sport. It gets on the evening news. You know, it's interesting because I was thinking about that when we were watching. We just watched uh, qualifying for for the Dutch TT. And I forget what rider it was, but he's got a big pot of chips sticker on his helmet. And I'm going like, I wonder how many markets that's relevant for that. That piece of advertisement it doesn't make me hungry. You know, like I can't go out and buy those chips. I've seen them in the stores in Europe, but sure. I'm thinking like outside of Europe. Is there anyone here? And, and you think about a lot of the sponsors you see on a lot of the bikes, and it's like, oh, that's a Spanish company that only deals in Spain, or that's an Italian company that only deals in the Mediterranean company or countries. You're like, man, like I feel like we're doing something wrong when the international platform, the international racing series, has still like local and regional advertisers. Like they shouldn't be able to be in there. Not not like I'm saying like they should be outlawed, but I'm just saying like the the marketing opportunity for an international brand is so much greater. And the cost of that comes with that should just like put these guys, you know, it should make that a uh, an area they can't break into because the cost should be too high or it's not worthwhile. But still, like it's it shows how European focused or so how um, Spanish focused or Italian focused some of these, oh, these people and are. And for years has been very wise in that they'll choose a a sponsor, a major title sponsor that goes in Europe, and then they'll have it come over yeah. here, and it'll be different. I always thought that was a really good idea for a. Um, a lower rung team that doesn't have to be forced or can can provide that to a, a sponsor and say, hey, you know, you know, to be on a Repsol Honda, even as a, a second tier, you're going to be out X millions of dollars. Absolutely. Why not have this as first tier, but just for the Euro rounds and it'll be a much cheaper. And then as long as it's okay with you, then we're going to have a non-conflicting sponsor that's in the United States for those races, et cetera, which I it's thought was pretty super cool. Super smart. It works on so many more levels. Um, and but really F1 sp- doesn't do that. So, you know, F1, I mean, there might be a couple teams that have a couple of weird spots, but they're pretty well, you know, but for the one, longest time it was a strange deal where Infinity was sponsoring the Red Bull, which had an, I think at the time had a Renault engine and that, that confused me as an enthusiast. I was like, why would you do that? But really they just wanted that Infinity blasted all over that car. And I guess for those of us that are in it and <clears throat> it seemed ridiculous. And it would make me go against Infinity, like screw that. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna support that. That's lame. I'll go buy Renault before I did that, right? But then you see how what it really means is they're just getting their their brand out there. Okay, I guess it just seems weird. Yeah. Same with the same with uh, Toyota in the NASCAR series. I get it that they, I understand why they've been and they've been doing it now for over a decade, and they do well at it. Uh, they had to engineer uh, big block V8s specifically so that they could do that. Does it sell Toyotas, or does it uh, does it allow Toyota to get more market share? Does it does it? And- See, that I think is a little different because none of those cars on the NASCAR track are what they're supposed to be. Those no are doubt. all just bespoke no racing machines that are just kind of they're all really similar because they're all built by like you know four or five companies, and and they all have to fit a 
templates. Right. And, I mean, it's really right. super lame when it comes to that, which I, I, I'm not into. So, so that makes sense, more sense to me where it's like, it makes as much sense for me, let's, let me put it this way. In my eyes, it makes just as much sense for Toyota to be in it as it does for GM, yeah, Dodge, okay. Cadillac, whoever sure. it is that's that's in there. That is a good point. You're right. Um, Maybe I don't agree with the rules of the series, but it, yeah. yeah. But yeah, when you, when, you, when, you, when you talk about, oh, it's an Infinity label on a Renault car, like that doesn't really make sense. I get well, that. Well, it's a Red Bull car. And then well, most people Bull. don't know. That's literally a Red Bull car. It was designed by, you know, that Red team. Red Bull's motorsport. Right. Yeah. And that, yeah. so that's another level that most people would find mind boggling that an energy drink company, and this is something that Steve Matchett on the, on the feed, the F1 feed says, or used to say a lot, is like, when they, especially when they were winning, they for many years were dominant. He's like, who would have thought an energy drink maker could could buy and what they did is they bought an existing f1 team and then they built it into a powerhouse that for a very long time was was dominant almost as much as ferrari in fact they were dominating ferrari for many years so that was an amazing thing to think well all you need is money and the same goes with this boat racing it seems like the overlying thing is you need a lot of money it's always money it's always money and one of the things they are trying to do is make it more affordable um but, but like when we talk about affordable, it's like, oh, it's a hundred million this year, not. I was about to say, are those half, half million, half billion dollar? Like, I would wonder. Like, I understand the boat itself is probably a hundred million dollars, maybe. Well, but you're not talking. Are we talking about the cost of goods or development? Right? I mean, that's the thing. Um, hundreds of millions of dollars are going into it, and it's it's funny because I was I was talking to one of my um my friends from New Zealand, and and the 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 Kiwi team has got a much smaller budget than say Larry Ellison's Oracle team. And yet they're both competing neck to neck. In fact, the Kiwis are leading right now at the time of this recording. So it's interesting to see like money doesn't necessarily talk, but in the past it's pretty much dictated. And I think that shows how they've, they've made some rules that are, that are smart for the competition. Um, so it's interesting. It's interesting to watch um, other sports, how they tackle this thing. I, I'm of the opinion that road racing needs a major overhaul to engage younger viewers and to get more enthusiasts in it and just get with the times. Um, it's funny hearing you talk about like, oh, I wish I was at, on the water watching these boats. And I'm like actually thinking like, well, it's actually a sport that's been designed to be watched on TV, really. Uh, it's hard to tell what's going on in the water. Now, if you can augment that with like an iPad that's in front of you while you're there, yeah, okay, that makes a lot more sense. But no, like, it goes same. for road racing. Well, yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like sure. that, that's that's where I see the analogy. We're like, I don't think road racing is a great spectator sport. Oh, I see two, three turns. I'm going to watch the rest of it on a jumbotron across the track with no sound. I think I'm getting a better experience at home on my TV in terms of watching what the racing action is. Now, the environment, the paddock, the visceral stuff of yeah, it. Yeah, okay, that's sure. well over fifty percent for me. I'd say it's seventy five percent for me is to be there to see the bikes in person to to be you know the in the in the whole realm watching them v- very close I, I like to always have as far as watching the race itself yeah i mean when we were at coda i didn't even watch the moto gp race i was busy tr- trying to find my phone i think <laughs> right well that was a different right? thing but, right but even then i wasn't that bothered i i was like i this track's so big i only get to see a corner anyway it's fun to see it it's great but I'll watch it on TV and I'm totally okay with that because I was there and we were interviewing the press officer from Ducati Motor. So I was getting the, a completely different experience than right. anybody else would. Of course, my cup was filled, but I'm thinking about to for back to the times when I started watching racing. The first races I ever watched were at Texas World Speedway, which 
it might be spectator friendly maybe if you know 30 years ago but this is just being on the infield you walk through the pits and then you watch the bikes as they go this is a trioval that has a infield and an outfield strangely enough where the track the road race track goes up and out and over the uh would it's not really a banking it's flat but there's a an area of the of the and what was a nascar track so it has all kinds of weird ways to to watch you know i grew up watching it and i enjoyed that you go out to the track you get to see the stuff you get to walk the pits and i want to be in it and then to see a lot of MotoGP or even going to formula one never been to formula one but that's my biggest worry is that i'll hate it because i can't get into the pit area Right. And that would suck. I want to be able to to see all the stuff because as the gearhead, that's what I get the enjoyment out of. Like if we go and watch a baseball game, I could give a crap about being near the dugout or being near the athletes because they mean nothing to me because I don't follow it. But I'll watch the game. And if I have somebody that's explaining to me what's going on or if I know just enough, like I do with when I go and watch a hockey game, I enjoy it. And I don't really care that they're all masked people and um, you know, when fights break out, I'm not really that much into it. I'm really interested in how they move the puck and how it goes down the ice. And it's really an interesting dynamic. Same with soccer. I've found myself really enjoying that. And you can watch that all in one spot. Sure, that's cool, I guess. And but you don't have to move. But I think that's where road racing is in general. You gotta you gotta expect that it's gonna be more of an experience than going and sitting in a stands. That's for me is what it is. But from your standpoint, you're saying that's what it needs to be. You sit in the stands, you get to see the things, hear the things, they're all right there. You got your Jumbotron in front of you and you get to have all the best of all the worlds. That would be the the ultimate. Yeah, I think it's just tough. Like I look at like why Supercross is so successful and just that format of like, oh, it's in a, it's in a baseball stadium. Like everyone can see every yeah. turn and sure, you know, and then obviously they, they're very smart about how they set up the paddock and the riders have to be there and there's an autograph session time and Plus the whole they have family. fire, like big well, old billows of fire. Obviously when they- with a fire <laughs> in fuego. <laughs> That's hot fire. Keep it hot. Yeah, sure. They um, spit hot fire and they have, you know, well, for better or worse, they have now the monster energy girls and kind of makes it a a spectacle of right and and, uh, and i, and well, I call, right would call that the pageantry there's a lot of pageantry, the pageantry. they have the, but you can go walk through the pits and right. there's a lot of easy access to those people right which is really good so that i think is something they get down which is the same thing like i i would praise use praise for on the tt where like the the paddock is really accessible you can get really close to the riders you can talk to the team you can saunter right up to the the mechanic working on the bike I'm and all about it. sauntering you, like, you saunter the shit out of them <laughs> you know i'm gonna saunter <laughs> i was just waiting for it oh uh, what have i created Don't be silly what have i created um <laughs> i actually got a, an lol out of you on that one that's, that's pretty good <laughs> yeah um <laughs> What were we even talking yeah, about? Yeah, we were. We went way we off. We rabbit holed hard. That was, a good, that was a good one. That was good. That was like, I don't know, 20 minutes of a rabbit hole. We were talking about the Superbike uh, shootout thing. Yeah. Um, wow. If, okay. we, if we can shift gears back to that. So so we're already, we're already about halfway through it. We've ridden the Aprilia RSV4RF, the Ducati Panigale. Oh, sorry. Ducati 1299 Panigale S, the... Kawasaki Ninja ZX10 RR and the Honda CBR 1000 RR SP. And we still have uh, four more bikes to go. And the the key to this, and this is the interesting part of seeing like what the other manufacturers, sorry, other 
publications publications are doing is they got to do this lineup and they have only so much time to get it they usually do a street ride and a track ride and you know i i after having done this now i can see how difficult it is to truly get a good idea of how the bikes perform if you're if you're forced to ride them in a very specific way in a very specific time because there's so much to getting yourself warmed up getting the bike warmed up understanding the track Getting the time, and this is on a track that we know, like like the back of my hand, like yeah. I can probably go through with a blindfold. I, you still have to get that going, then evaluate the bike on its own merits, not with conditions, or fi- try and find that balance with them. So seeing what that we have to do with just two of them at a time, wow, it's really tough to think that you're getting uh, a good review with the other the other way, which would be just like banging them all out and trying to go from one to the other and to keep your head straight on which has what right? it would be really hard and that's and that's one of the the formats so like the advantage that we have so first of all i should probably say we're trying to keep this like a pacific northwest like og connection so we're riding at like portland international the ridge motorsports park uh oregon raceway park um you know three you know great pacific northwest tracks in oregon and washington working with local you know, dealers and track day groups and vendors and and stuff to kind of showcase what's going up here in the PNW where where Quentin and I call home. But yeah, like like you said, like you know, you and I both know PIR really well and have done a lot of laps around there. You you mo- definitely more so than me. But like, even if I was at like one of these other tracks that I know really well, like okay, yeah, some of my track knowledge is going to get ramped up really quick. But I still have to learn the bike and like to learn a bike in like a session or two because i've definitely been to a couple press launches where like we literally got an accumulation of about an hour on the bike you know four 15 minute sessions yeah to evaluate it and especially if it's at a track that i've never been to before i'm like you know what the first session and maybe the first session and a half i'm learning the track not the bike and so that really like cuts into like oh how much of an assessment can you really give and then now with these bikes with all the electronics and all the complicated systems you know, if you really want to give a fair evaluation of those, like you have to go out in more than one session. And I'm not saying like other publications are doing it wrong, but I'm just like, there is a, there is a great task at hand here. So I can understand like why you would want to rent the entire track to yourself because you're going to need all the extra time to go out and you yeah, know, fiddle sure. around and, and do your thing. So and far, unfortunately we've got relationships built up with entities that will allow us to do a little bit more than your norm, like ride in groups that we might not normally be in right. and right we have to be super careful and not strafe uh b group riders when we're more a group riding you know and not be a-holes about it so that type of thing we're able to morph but you know of course we'd be better off if we could rent the track uh, because holy crap that's what you need and it's not just us too is another point to this because right we're, we're we got some control we're basically the controls um, as the people they're going to be with everyone, hopefully, uh, you know, even, even that's in doubt because we're both busy people and I might not be able to make every single one of them, but I'm going to try, but we've got Andy Debrino, uh, who is local, uh, fast racer, like heavy duty, fast, Wunderkind, like, yeah. type, type, or sorry, top five AMA super sport level, uh, motocross, local winning, uh, flat holds, track holds records at PIR yeah, in certain he's, classes. He's, I think for a while he had the outright lap, yeah, I think lap he did, record. Yeah. yeah, so we're talking about the highest level that you can get racer. Um, that is fairly cerebral and very enthusiastic, and yeah. um, is is just a perfect fit. And then we also had at this for the for a few of these, it's going to be him. And uh, a local fast track day person, Hannah Johnson, who was uh, for the long time a, a service uh, 
writer, service advisor for Moto Corsa, somebody that we know very well that has a lot of laps around PIR, that has a lot of time on sport bikes in general, um, and I think might have just started racing or just got a Yamaha R6 race bike for themselves. So She's doing the triple, triple, cripple, cripple, triple. Oh, that's right. She's yeah. got a cripple triple. So you got an R6 that has the cripple triple done to it. Um, if you don't know what that is, look it up. It's fascinating. We've talked about it on the show. I, it's I'm cool. Sure we, I, it's super I was, cool. I was pretty sure we had. So there's that and then has an 848 and et cetera. So we were like, all right, we want somebody that's like way beyond us that could do lap times. And PIR, the lap record's 106 something or other. 105.9, 106, something like yeah. that. It's really fast, right? Like 105.7 maybe? And that's without yeah. the chicane. And that was, I think it's either Devin or Andy Debrino. I think it's still Devin McDonough, who's a, an, again, another friend of ours that races a Kawasaki. So there's that's that's like the main okay thousand cc record. Well, shoot the the six hundred record isn't that much further back from that. I don't remember what it is, but it might be in the high sevens, low eights. Um, my fastest lap ever there was a nine on my eight forty eight, but I could I doubt I could ever do that again. That was a very unique situation. Uh, most of the time, if I'm like in race mode on a perfectly set up bike. 10s and 11s, that would be tough for me to get to because it's been many years since I've done it. But that gives you an idea of where I'm at. I would say I could go out there and do 11s, 12s all day long in a race scenario. Uh, Andy was able to get into that realm yeah. on the street bikes pretty quick. With street setup. Right. And that's yeah. that's an impressive thing. Um, Jensen, where you're right in the mid-15, that realm as well. Yeah, I had a couple low 15s. I think I had a 14.7, but yeah, I'm definitely remembering um, on one of the tests, I was only like a couple tenths between the two bikes and it was low 115s. Yeah, which is pretty rad. So consistency being the key. And then Hannah's a little bit off of that, but not far, but really close to what a normal track day person. So that was why we wanted to have somebody like Hannah. It was like fast, goes into the fast group, but isn't a racer yet. So has a, a specific set of skills from track days and is uh, a good communicator and a, a, a clean, consistent rider. And that's, that's Hannah in a nutshell. So that was a really cool thing to be able to do that. And then we're going to switch up when our bracketry go from the PIR to the Ridge and have two of the tests, which will be pitting the winners against the right. other winners. That's right? when the March Madness thing comes on. So each bracket, the winner goes on, the loser goes home. Two bikes enter, one bike leaves. And... um for each round, we'll do different tracks. So we're starting at PIR, which is, I think we've talked about before, a uh, really fast horsepower track has two long straights with a couple turns in between them. Uh, still has some interesting elements that are going to test the bikes, but it really is, I think, going to showcase the power that the bikes bring to the, to the market. Then we move on to like the semifinals, which would be at the Ridge, which has a lot more elevation, has a little bit more technical turns. Uh, still a lot more, a significant amount more. But with that said, what, you know, we're talking about PIR. It's a momentum track as much as it is horsepower. Yeah. Which is why a 600 and a 1,000, there's not much difference between them in lap time. So a lot of people say well, it's a horsepower track. And I always call out horsepower tracks as bullshit. It's like, no, it's momentum. You have to be able to keep speed. So it's just not technical. Well, you, you and I were talking about this before the show. And I call it a horsepower track because if I got out there on my R1, which makes like 150 at the rear wheel, maybe um i'm going to be about a second or two slower than if i get out on the latest whammy bammy super bike which has like 180 190 at the rear wheel whereas they would be equal if we went to a small if track. we went to a smaller more technical yeah. you know momentum track right, my lap right. times hopefully would be closer um i know for a fact like when i hop on a few bikes i can remember a few launchy things that i've done there were like oh wow i just went a lot faster than i normally go and i'm like 
I think I'm just doing that because I'm going down the front straight a hell of a lot faster than I normally do. But, um, so from the ridge, we go to then, uh, ORP, which is like nature's roller coaster for motorcycles. Yeah. Oregon Raceway Park. It's in Eastern Oregon and it's rad. It's one of my favorites. I, I spent many, many a track day there as an instructor. So I, I love it. It's great. It'll showcase a handling. It, it'll, right. it'll separate wheat from the shaft relative to how the bikes function, um, in corners straight up right yeah. that, i'm not that, but we was we by that time we already figured out which ones are fast and pleasing because of their speed there it's going to get scrappy and that'll be an interesting way to end it i think it'll be good i think each each round we're up in the ante on on how technical those courses will be and i think orp is going to be a great gauntlet for showing okay we've already shown how much okay how much power you have we've already shown how how great you're your chassis and your electronics can manage that power through through something like the ridge. Now we're going to put somewhere where like, how does your bike flick? How does your bike handle when like things are really tight and scrappy and hard? And I think that's going to separate, show some good separation between the two machines that end up in that round. And uh, I'll be curious to see what bikes those are. And so far, we've been able to you, you stay on the uh, Pirelli Super Courses as the as a control tire. We're not necessarily going to be able to do that in every situation. No, yeah, we're kind of looking at. Um, Kind of like what the the super sport tire is for for each brand. We're going to try and stay as close to OEM spec. I'm trying. I haven't gone through and looked at all the bikes and what their OEM spec tire is, but it's looking like pretty much what comes shipped with the bikes is what we're going to be rolling on, which is great to see. Um, obviously, manufacturers have figured it out that like, hey, when you've got a high performance machine, we should put a high performance tire on it rather than some dud of a tire and that yeah. cut, that cuts our cost or cut our weight. Um, another thing, like we should probably mention is Quentin. I'm I'm one of the focuses on this test is we're not doing the base models per se. Oh yeah. Sure. Uh, I'm trying to, the whole purpose of this is to try and to limit as many variables as possible. So like, it's kind of hard. Like when you go and you see some of these press launches and it's like, Hey, it's like the bare bones Jixer versus the top of the line, you know, Ducati or it's the BMW, but it's the BMW with all the whammy bammy packages put on it. Cause we know like BMW has like a weird, you know, feature set. Like it's not like a trim level, but it's like, oh, it's got the premium package. It's got the super race package. Yeah, it's sure. got the Troy Corser package. And the magazine that we just read the article on men- made mention of this is like every time we get a bike from BMW, they give us a test bike that unfortunately has more bells and whistles than what we're expecting because they were trying to go for the 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 price point, right? right. To get the cheaper the of the cheapest. one. Which I understand that, but then you <clears> end up with a BMW that has a bunch of crap on it that it, that puts it well above the rest of them when it shouldn't. Well, and it's not fair. I think it's not fair, too, because like some manufacturers have, you know, they have a bike at a couple different price points. And so that was one of the things I was like, well, let's look at the, I'm shooting for like the $20,000 price point, which, you know, is hard if you're going to try and evaluate what the base models is. But what it does do really effectively is it starts making parity amongst the bikes for the features that they have. Yeah. So you start seeing like, okay, all the bikes here kind of have forged aluminum wheels instead of some of them having forged and some of them having cast and some of them having, you know, super fancy stuff. And they all have like more premium suspension products, more premium braking products and, you know, have all the electronic bells and whistles because I do think it's really valuable to understand like, where in the price point, you know, that sweet spot is of, of price versus features. But I think in the terms of like figuring out like who's making the best bike on the market, 
it's it, it muddles things. So having everyone really tight and close to the same price point kind of showcases that. It's like your bike didn't win because it was the most expensive in the lineup. Like 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 BMW is a great example. It's like the BMW might win, but if it's like eight thousand dollars more than the bike that came in second, did it really win? Yeah, sure. You know, or is it just the fact that like it just had more features because it cost more? Um, and that's that's an interesting you know thing. And I think people either agree or disagree with it, but that's what that's kind of like uh, the fun part about these things. And it's as far as to what the appetite of the listeners, there it is. That's that's going to be an interesting thing to see. You're gonna you're gonna be feeding that into asphalt and rubber, and then as soon as you start feeding it, we can talk more explicitly about each thing on right. the podcast. And I think that'll be cool. We'll probably do quick little roundups on on the rounds that we have done. Um, but so far, it's been interesting. It's been an interesting thing to tackle as a publisher. I, I will say to to you know one get into this realm because there's not that many publications that do it and and now having dipped my toe into it i see why because it is a huge logistical headache and it's not cheap it's 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 rather expensive to do and you got to you got to manage a lot of things i'll be quite frankly there's a lot of brands that don't want to play ball and or they want to play ball but they want to play ball their way and so it's 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 one of the few times where i've had uh OEMs make requests that are very very dirty um and you can just tell it's because they understand that hey winning the the crown is asphalt and rubber super bike of the year is probably something that's going to be valuable to them marketing wise the other thing we're not allowing oems to show up with their support rig or their test riders or their racers and, and give us bikes that are that are and what wouldn't you say this is because what we're trying to do is give a good idea of these fancier bikes for a for a track day enthusiast mostly to be able to say these are the reasons why you should or should not spend your money on this bike as a track bike sure. for you. So when you go to your local dealer, you shouldn't have the setup crew from a manufacturer there to make that bike right. better. Unless unless me purchasing their superbike means I'm now a factory rider with like mechanics that are going to follow me around. What's the point of that? Uh, and two, it, it rewards the brands that, you know, like, okay, if you have a really complex electronic system and me as the user can't figure that out, then it's no good. You know, if I can't use it in a way that's meaningful, then it might as well not be on the bike. So it adds an element of that. And it also adds like, you know, you look at some of these OEMs, they have the budget that they can send three guys to each press launch that can support the bike and tweak on it and, you know, make sure the suspension's doing this. And, hey, it needs the clutch is kind of doing this thing. Okay, we can replace the clutch for you. Or like, hey, the brakes are kind of fading. Oh, we'll, we'll bleed the brakes for you. And they can support that at a level much higher than say some other brands can. So we're taking that out of the equation as well. So the bike that ends up winning isn't, they didn't win because that brand was able to throw me more resources at trackside support for our launch or for our test, because that, that too, isn't quite fair. So there's a couple rules that um, have definitely been uh, sticking points for, for OEMs. And it'll be interesting to see at the end of the day, um, who's actually involved and who's not. And that's something we're dealing with right now. Um, so I don't want to give away too much. I don't want to name too many names because I think, I think a lot of them are going to come around on it. Um, mostly because they'll probably realize just how stubborn I am and um, how serious I am about not, not being bought and not being, not wavering on my principles. The whole reason I'm doing this is because I think there's a, there's a, we're not doing it very well as an industry. We're not being very scientific or we're having to, to kowtow too much to the whims of the manufacturers. And I think that's wrong. And I think that hurts publications. I think that hurts their readers. I think that hurts consumers. And um, we're going to do it our way. And hopefully it's something that's beneficial for for the industry and for, for people that read our site. And uh, 
We'll have a lot of fun doing it in the process, I think, Quentin. Yep, I agree. Uh, moving on, do you want to talk about some newsy stuff? Newsy. Um, there's been a lot going on, and I want to like because you're a newsy floozy. Better than being floozy newsy, or a goozy floozy. A f- goozy floozy that's a little newsy, <laughs> but isn't too choosy. <laughs> we do this all. We can do this all day. <laughs> Let's stop. Yeah. Um, I, I think we just want to give like a warning. Like, if you're operating heavy machinery right now, you should probably just stop because you're going to get drunk on the drinking game because there's a lot of Ducati news to get through. I think I want to save it for a little bit later in the show. But there's been like some really interesting things coming out, Quentin. And one of them that I want to talk to you about is this note that Honda will finally be coming out with an electric scooter in 2018. Uh, it's something that's been rumored for a while. Honda has talked about it for a while. It is very likely to be an electric version of the Honda Super Cub. One of the, no, it is the most successful motorcycle ever sold in the world. I think that's a huge, huge thing for the industry. And I don't want to like put you too far on the spot because we all know you work for Alta and you got a, you got a, a hat in this electric game. But I think as an industry person, as a consumer, I think we can look at this as a moment in time where like we're seeing major manufacturers get very, very serious about electric vehicles and we're starting to see their, their ramp up for that kind of technology to come into more consumer mainstream consumer product lines like i can't think of anything more important than the honda super cub getting replaced with an electric motor than yeah sure you know what that could start the sea change of of uh, you know then that that trickles down into a lot of other parts but the you know what on a scooter the use case of a scooter is unique in that it is around town specifically generally especially a smaller one so it does make sense and then the idea that it's going to have a swappable battery opens up the po- you know a lot of possibilities where you as a uh, say a, an employer could have a, a bank of these batteries at your um, charging at, at where you are if the if the range is beyond what most people would be able to do in a day uh, back and forth so somebody rides their scooter in from the hinterlands and they can do a battery swap or something like that or if cities uh, munip- mis- ah, sorry municipalities could have places you know things where you can buy a new battery you know through through uh, uh that's charged basically you're just putting money in and then you get vending machined out of battery so that you can do a swap something like that so i i think that makes a lot of sense i could see that i could see the use case for that for sure yeah it'll be it'll be i think it could be a huge changer i was reading something too uh honda's developing i want to say a 960 volt recharging system for for europe like they're going to come up with like these little car parks that are solar powered and they go into batteries and they're they're designed for rapid charging of vehicles and they've got a long-term kind of um infrastructure plan for that's the main thing that's really what you got to do more than anything uh and that's something that a lot of the uh, electric companies would were talking about i remember when our my friend jake was started working at bramo that was one of their things was trying to get stations plugged in or showing that there were stations all the way up and down the i5 corridor yeah that had been put in so that people that have evs that are pure ev can go up and down the i5 corridor uh, with fast charging right? yeah well that, that, that you know it's interesting to say that because like you look at tesla and they basically were like all right well if the market isn't going to respond and start building these we're just going to start building our own yeah because it, it has to be done it allows people to use our product and if that gives us a strategic advantage over other manufacturers, so be it. And you know, obviously, Elon Musk has the uh, the bankroll to to make that happen. And 
and I think it's for the betterment of of that brand, truthfully. And good old Musky. He's got a it's been musky around here lately with the heat. <laughs> right. We were at the track yesterday and it was like it wasn't quite a hundred degrees, but man, it was hot. And today is even hotter. We are definitely in the throes of summer. Um I'm gonna start calling you the muskox. <laughs> the muskox. So it's interesting. It's interesting to see that that technology trickling through. And I'll do you one one better on that. Kind of outside the realm of asphalt and rubber, but but so interesting. I published it on it anyways. The 2018 Yamaha YZ450F motocross bike just debuted. Yeah. Brand new bike. But one of the things they're adding to it is this smartphone tuning app. Yeah. Which is like a shot across the bow to like the dino jets and the power oh, commanders yeah. and the bazazzes of the world sure. because it's, it's taking that engine map, fueling map, uh, technology and putting it right in the hand of anyone that can buy this motocross bike. And I could just look at that and I'm just like, yeah, that's the future. I don't know why we haven't had that in the, over the past decade. I don't know why we have to wait and see it now showing up. But. Oh, because can you imagine the amount of testing it you have to do? To make sure that the the your the abilities you're giving your end user will not screw the bike up, so you, they're going to be able to tweak things, but only within a certain amount of parameters, so that they couldn't blow the bike up, right? I don't know. I haven't talked to anybody that has, is a part of this, but I'm pretty sure you can't give it zero fuel at at full RPM at full throttle load. You know what I mean? Sure, um, sure, sure. Uh, yeah, I, I hear exactly what you mean. And part of it, I think, uh, and, you know, it's interesting that it's a it's a bike that is closed course only, so you don't have to of worry course, about sure. carb and EPA and all that. Uh, although it is probably going to affect uh, red green sticker for California, but it, it might do. But little things like that, like ignition timing, can make a huge difference. Still render the same tailpipe emissions, just changes the way the bike behaves. And then if you uh, are super tweaker and you go in there and uh, change cam timing, then you can also do this. Boy, that does open up a lot of. A lot of doors for for tuning specifically for shops that aren't uh, normally doing that type of thing or customers that might not normally do something like that. And it'll actually increase knowledge, I think, in some ways. I like it. I think it's a great idea. I think it's but not, I could also see where it could go horribly wrong. I can see where it goes horribly wrong. But at the end of the day, like, okay, putting my lawyer hat on, you're talking about a system where there's an assumption of risk that if I'm Johnny Go Fast and I got my YZ and I get out my app and I start tinkering around, I'm like, well... That's no different than me tinkering around in the engine, putting on a pipe and changing my yeah. my jetting on my carb or, or installing a power commander and sitting out there with my laptop and doing the exact same thing where I was like, well, I'm the one making the change. It's not like Yamaha gave me a machine that can make the change. And I'm sure there's some crazy disclaimer that pops up when you you know fire this up for the first time or every time um, you know, with the liabilities in mind. But there is like like you have to actively as the consumer make a change yourself to the machine to create the dangerous effect that does kind of absolve you from a lot of liability. Like, <laughs> like can you just imagine like, like being in that courtroom, like, okay, Timmy, did you, did you go in with your smartphone and make a bunch of stupid changes knowing full damn well that you didn't know what the heck you were doing and the engine blew up and you're upset about this? Why? Like you did something and you didn't like the outcome of it. We can get in, we can get into liability, foreseeability of risk and all those things. But like, I kind of just sit there and like, well, I think that tips towards the consumer, just like you're gonna just start mucking around. You better know what you're doing, sort of thing. Fair enough. But I, I guess would, you'd have to be a good lawyer on both sides. I would say. Sure, and I would love, to, I would love to get some hands on the on the system to see exactly how far Yamaha has taken it with their adjustability, and also to see what kind of like 
limitations and liability kind of disclaimers, like, you know, the, the, the nitty gritty of it. I would love to see that. Um, maybe the next time we're down in SoCal, that's something we can check out. I don't foresee asphalt and are we getting invited to the YZ 450 launch? <laughs> just, They're it's like, just not it's, our core competency. It's dirt and rubber. We can't see why you would want <laughs> to do anything with dirt and rubber. It was fun. I think, uh, I think it was a Honda Africa twin launch. They're like, all right, Jensen, we're going to go down some like dirt trails. Like you're good with that, right? <laughs> <laughs> we're just not like a question of your ability. It's just the name. <laughs> It suggests something. I'm mm-hmm. like, well, yeah. Mm-hmm. Fair play. Um, Quentin, we should take a quick break for the advertisements and then come back and do the Ducati Onslaught. Onslaught. Quentin, this episode is brought to you by the good folks at AGV and Dainese. And the Dainese D stores. Now we've we've been doing a lot of these ads so far. They 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 bought like a good chunk of time on the podcast, and we've been talking about oh they got stores in San Francisco and Orange County and Chicago, and stores are coming here. It's kind of like it's like it kind of almost feels like a big day for me. We're like oh yeah, there's there's finally a store in Orlando. There's finally a store that's just opened in New York. You should go check it out. And there's a store coming in L.A. Like like we're going to go along the adventure with them. I feel like oh yeah. So right? cute. It's adorable. Mm-hmm. Um, so we should just make that known to our listeners because I know like some of you are binge listening and you're hearing probably older podcasts. Have, have you come online with a show and the, those shows that talk about the Orlando and New York stores? Well, they need to be updated because those stores are, are live now. And if you're in those areas, you should definitely go out and check uh, check out the the wares, as it were. For sure. Let's get back to the show. Yes, let's. All right, Quentin. Uh, do you have your beverage ready? I do. I've got mine. I've got a lot more beverage than you have. Yeah, I know. I've already consumed most of mine. Yeah, you got you got a preemptive head start. Can you loan me a dollar? Because I hear Ducati's up for sale. <laughs> and my favorite part about this, and I'm still not like, I was talking to someone the other night about like what's going on, and they're like, Jensen, like how how serious is this? Like, what's your what's your bullshit meter detect on this? And I still think I'm kind of fifty fifty on it. No, you don't. So you don't think Motocorsa is going to buy Ducati? No, um, maybe like my a minority position, <laughs> but I don't think they're going to come up with wait, like wait. the full. Yeah, I don't think they're going to come up with the one point five billion dollar figure that's uh, being floated around. Actually, it's a one point five billion euro figure. Whoa, um, that's that's so gnarly to think because what two thousand twelve was when Audi bought it and it was like about a billion. Uh, it was one point one billion dollars. It was eight hundred, eight hundred something odd million euros. I forget what the exchange rate was. Okay, so half, almost. Yeah, like they're saying it's doubled in value. Some of that's currency conversion, but yeah. yeah. Um, you know that's kind of interesting, right? And I'm kind of working on on my thoughts with that. The latest rumor has has Harley Davidson involved, which which I think is interesting. Uh, I don't know if it really makes sense for both brands, but um, I can also see how it could kind of work. My my kind of reluctance on this whole thing was just like, it all kind of started with a report saying that the Volkswagen Group, having gone through this Dieselgate thing, needs to come up with billions of dollars. And one of the ways they're going to do that is, you know, well, we don't really know how they're going to do that. So they're evaluating all their assets. And so it started with them just being like, hey, we need to figure out how much Ducati is worth in case we think about 
selling it. And then that morphed into, because of like the horrible game of telephone that this industry plays, of like, oh, Volkswagen's going to sell Ducati. And it's like, well, no, they're trying to figure out how much it's worth in case they do want to sell it. Like there's like, it's like a double maybe is involved. Yeah. And now it's kind of morphed like, well, you know, later in July, a bunch of companies are going to give bids to Volkswagen on how much they would be willing to pay for it. And one of those brands is Harley Davidson. And you're like, well, without knowing more information, we still don't really know how serious Volkswagen is about selling anything. And we really don't know how serious Harley Davidson's bid's going to be in there. Because I guarantee you, everyone would like to buy Ducati. I would like to buy Ducati. I've got $10, Claudio. You know, if you want to sell it to me for 10 bucks, let's do it. Probably not going to take that deal. Harley Davidson comes along and says, yeah, we want to buy Ducati. We'll give you $100 million for it. Probably not going to take that deal. But yeah. to Harley Davidson, that might be how, what Ducati's worth in terms of how yeah. it makes sense for their core business. Sure. So there's a lot of ifs, ands, or buts, and there's a lot of like, you know, retelling of facts, and and the lot loses a lot of the important details. And I'm kind of sitting there just going like, well, what's really going on here? But it is interesting to see that you know it does sound like Harley Davidson is seriously considering putting in a bid. It does sound like there's other brands including Invest Industrial, which used to uh, own Ducati before they sold it to the Volkswagen Group, is is looking at it. So there's some interesting players. I think it's all going to come down to, you know, if Volkswagen really is looking for 1.5 billion euros and that's their price, they're not going to take, you know, 1.49 or, 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 you know, anything less. That might be... You know, a bridge too high because like that, like you said, that's like almost double the price and has this company doubled in value in this amount of time. And I'm not really sure that it has. I'd have to go through and look at the books and you have to kind of consider some of the financial situations for the brand. I can see a couple arguments like, well, we built a factory in Southeast Asia and look at this market and look at our potential for doing this. Right. And we call it, I don't know if that the term is right, but it'd be like the blue sky of, you know, from when a dealership decides to sell, they... There might be assets, they got the building, they got the bikes that are on the floor right. and the parts, but then the blue sky, from what I understand, is the, 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 the name and the potential for doing business, right? And the, the idea that you could- Potential of growth. Yeah, right. right. So, and I could see where they might have that if they're playing their cards right. Well, and that's the tough part. So I, I'm glad you bring that up because if you look at Ducati's sales, they're not really that strong right now. Like, yeah, they keep growing, but they're not growing by leaps and bounds. They've really plateaued. And when you start digging into the unit sales, you're not seeing growth on the core items. You're seeing growth come from Scrambler. And truth be told, I think we're going to see Ducati sales shrink in 2017 because the Scramblers aren't selling as well. We saw almost minimal growth in 2016 before this very same reason. And so it's kind of like a bad time to sell. They really should have sold it like a year or two ago because that blue sky potential would have been much greater. Whereas now it's like, hey, guys, you kind of hit your peak. And now you're plateauing. You never want to sell on a plateau. Well, but they might have things in line saying, hey, by 2020, these are the, I know for, I definitely know that they have a lot of models coming out. Sure. But the question is, is what are those models and what has that changed, at least since I was involved, because of the success of the scrambler in the beginning, but then the drop off in the, oh, we're maybe we're not going to be able to make this a brand scrambler by Ducati. Maybe we're going to have to do some tweaks. That that would be what I'd be interested in is where are they with all that crap that they were shoving down people's throats is all right, 
It's a new brand. We're going to make Scramblers, and it's going to be Scrambled by Ducati. It's going to be completely separate. And those of us in it were like, oh, give me a fucking break, right? And and I get it. I understand it to a point. But all I can think of is Yamaha Star, right? All I can think of is Buell. I, you know, there's like, you got to do it right. You got to do it really well. You got to do it. You Honda, do it 100%. Honda to Acura well. You have to do it Nissan to Infinity well to be able to to take a, a brand and separate it from an already existing platform. And I, that can happen. I'm just saying I don't have the faith. Yeah. I've got I got two things to say on that and and I'll I'll Tarantino and do them in reverse. Um I think you're absolutely right. Like it's one of those things like um when it comes to corporate development and coming to managing brands and we become a house of brands you got to do it a hundred percent. And that's always been like the kind of the thing with Ducati, especially with the scrambler Ducati and even more so with the X Diavel, because they're trying to do the same kind of thing with the Diavel yeah. X Diavel yeah. sub brand where it's just like, okay, well you're doing one at like half measure and you're doing the other, at like a quarter measure. And that's just not going to work, but it can be done. And that's where I look at like Harley Davidson. And I say like, you know, you know how this makes sense to me is like, you're going to be the barn shield brand and you're going to focus like you got your Harley Davidson bikes and then you own ducati and you've got ducati bikes and those two things are done completely separate from each other you're just going after different pieces of the pie within the industry you're going after different demographics within the industry and you're just trying to basically arbitrage the entire industry and its fluctuations so you don't have to be like hey sport bikes really popular this year sales are great oh now they're not so great and we're not getting as much money but it's okay because cruisers are really popular and we've got those two and we're selling those like you just kind of What's the industry? If the industry grows, you grow. Um, instead of it being more segment based, like like Harley Davidson and to an extent Ducati are right now. Um, I saw an interesting story by uh, another publication talking about the cannibalization of the two brands and how it would work, and I think that's total BS. Yeah, people complaining too, just random like knee jerk. Oh, I don't want tassels on my and and I joke about it, and I posted up that awesome picture. Oh, that was a great piece of Photoshop, that, right that, there. Yeah, really well done Photoshop. If you can have a look at it on the Two Enthusiasts yeah. Facebook page, uh, Scott, my buddy Scott McDermott gave credit to his buddies John and Tom, who did that. I guess well, either that or or Scott did it at their behest. Whatever it was, uh, Scott's a rad artist out of Texas who does a lot of moto based artwork, um, especially for. Uh, road racing, the CMRA, et cetera. So um, he posted that up and I'm like, dude, you got to let me share that. Can I share that? Make it, make it, <laughs> make, make it, it live. Yeah. yeah. So I did. Um, and, and the, the moaners and, and whiners, oh, they're going to ruin the brand. It's like, I, if you think that that would happen, I mean, you're crazy. It's just crazy talk. I don't even get it. I know, understand there might be some weird muddledness, but I, I, it's, it's, that's not how it works. I, I just don't even, I could see them fucking it up, sure, but not that bad. Ducati isn't MV Agusta, for Christ's sake. It's not, it's not even Aramaki. It's a, a brand on its own that holds its own on a really high level. Not, maybe not as much as Harley Davidson, but I doubt it's that far off relative to brand recognition in the world, right? Brand value versus units sold, I would give ducati the the way bigger performance punch way bigger but it is interesting you bring up mv agosa i think actually mv agosa is a great example of what that deal would look like because it's not like all of a sudden mv started showing up with air-cooled v twins in them um and (laughs) truth be told and that and that's where i get like really poopy about some of the reports that i'm seeing and when they talk about it i'm just like like if you look at why buell failed under harley davidson leadership and why mv agosa was truthfully a success under harley davidson leadership then you start understanding 
this situation a whole lot better. The second you start lumping these two things together as being the same is the day that I stopped taking you seriously as a human being. Harley Davidson and Buell was never going to work. The second, because that was, that was a compromise on every single level. Whereas I would say Harley Davidson MV was a great example of what you do. Now the recession came along and it screwed everything up, but that's not Harley Davidson's fault. Because once that happened, Harley Davidson was like, Hey, we're going to go under as a company if we don't scale back and get rid of these things. Yeah, sure. We got to focus on our, on our meat and potatoes and stop worrying about the gravy. So you have to take about the details and the times and the situations of those, of those things. But Harley Davidson wiped MV Agusta's debt off the books. They modernized that factory. They put tons of energy and resources and money into developing the three cylinder engine platform, which is the lifeblood to MV Agusta right now. And those bikes or those engines, as we were talking to our buddy Ronnie the other day, are fucking amazing. They're some of the best motors built in this industry right now. They're not without their flaws, but in terms of their engineering, they are beautiful. And so what was the downside of Harley Davidson owning MV Agusta again? I mean, yeah, they only, they sold it back to the Castiglione's for like a, a, a token Euro, but that's kind of like a function of Italian business law that, you know, yeah, wasn't negotiated very well. But in terms of like what they did for that company, they did a ton for that company. That you company think is not that if, if the economy had continued growing, then they would have continued helping and tr- maybe would have been able to reap profit from MV. I think, I think MV would be in a much better place than they are right now. Sure. Absolutely. And then would Harley be in a better place? Like, would they be getting much profit from them or do you think they were going to, you know, make an MV based cruiser or something? No, you I know? don't. See, if they're smart, they're, they don't do that. I think, I think they saw the opportunity of like, Hey, we can get this iconic Italian sport bike brand that reaches consumers that we are never, ever going to touch with a ultra low, heavy, soft tail, Astro Glide, Astro Glide, trike, Roadhead, whatever, the Roadhead King, <laughs> um, you know, but there's, it's just like those, those people that buy a Harley Davidson, a lot of them aren't going to be the guys that buy or girls or girls or others that buy. MV goes to F4 superbikes. Yeah, sure. And some of them are. Some of them are for sure. Very, 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 very. But there's not a lot of overlap there. And that's a great way for them to be like, hey, here's a way that not only can we get it into a segment that we're not in, not only can we attack a demographic that we don't have, but we have the opportunity to take a brand that is good and strong and small and grow it into something that has a lot of value. You could grow an MV into a Ducati really easily. And that's probably the pitch that Castiglione, Giovanni Castiglione, is giving investors right now as he looks for more money to build this brand. He's like, hey, look, we could be the Ducati. We probably have a stronger brand than Ducati in terms of units sold and, and resources. And if you gave us the money and we could build this up, like this could be really something quite, quite good. That's the pitch, right? Um, so I don't look at it as like necessarily a bad thing if, if Ducati came under that, that purview of Harley Davidson, because it would, there would be a lot of strengths there. I just don't know if it makes a ton of sense. I don't know if it's worth 1.5 billion euros. I don't know if Harley Davidson can get that kind of money. If you start spending that kind of money, it takes away resources. It's the same thing when you look at Polaris with the victory and in Indian brands. Defeat. Vi- yeah. I mean, victory. <laughs> <laughs> There's victory and defeat. Um, but that's one of those things like victory could have been a huge brand for Polaris and could have sold a bunch of bikes. It's just, it was probably going to take another decade and probably another, 
I don't know, half a billion dollars to get there. Or they could spend, you know, a tenth of that or, or a fraction of that and in even fewer years achieve the same thing with Indian. Yeah. And if you only have the capital to do one or the other, which one are you going to pick? And now victory is gone in defeat. And we see Indian getting a ton of resources from Polaris and they're making a really good play at going after Harley Davidson's bread and butter. And that was the thing. Victory was never going to be a Harley Davidson replacement. No. And the Harley Davidson thing is such a lurid item for people in this industry because it's half the big bike market in the United States. And it's what, like 250,000 units worldwide, roughly. Um, that's a huge thing. That's really, really lurid for, for all these brands. Victory was never going to do that, but Indian could. And for, for a lot less money and a lot less resources, a lot less effort, because Polaris has still got other segments that it's trying to spend money and get yeah. into. They, you know, sure. They're doing timber sleds and they're doing apparel and they're doing electric, you know, utility vehicles for, you know, and, farmers and, the, and military vehicles. And, being eclipsed by probably by side-by-side sales. Right. I mean, those side things sides are hot. Right. 30 grand for a uh, Side by side, a well equipped side by side, raking in the cash. You look at them; they look fairly well designed, but they also look like they're made not for thirty grand. No, right? no, so, no, right? Yeah, that's a really cool thing to see. Like if you're able to to give people product that they like, and it's fast and bitching and cool, and you can make it cheap and sell it not cheap, then great. Yeah. And that's a wonderful thing. And if that is what Harley could do with Ducati, which is you know, buy low, sell high. I can't. It's just very strange to think about relative to the conversation we had almost exactly two months ago with Jason Chinook. Yeah. When he was like, oh, it's great because, you know, we're not being sold. So it's great to feel like we're not being sold. It's like that felt right at the time. It made sense when he said it. But now it's like, oh, well, how does it feel now? <laughs> yeah. I'd be curious to see. We'll probably see him in uh, Laguna for World Superbike. I'll be curious to hear his take on it. And then. And truthfully, by then we probably have some some updates on on where we're at with with all of this news. Um, but there is kind of like an element of like like you know he was I think talking about stability, the stability of the brand being inside of Volkswagen Group added a lot of stability to this brand. Where you start having like investors and private equity firms and all that like that are just like buy low, sell high. There's no stability in that. You're just always on the chopping block at some yeah. point or another, um, which can be tough. But I want to get back to my second point that you were talking about was with the product. Well, we, we do have some insight into the product that's coming down the pipe because we saw some of that this week. We saw the teaser for the final edition Panigale V-Twin Superbike. And we also saw the first images of the V4 Superbike that's been rumored for a long time now. And I'll be kind of curious, you know, that would be the kind of thing that you would say to an investor or say to a potential purchaser, like, hey, you know, here's our roadmap and here's our new V4 Superbike and it's going to be awesome. It's going to win Jensen's 2018 Superbike shootout. That's how good it is. <laughs> that I mean, that's right. obviously by then our Superbike shootout will have that kind of clout. Obviously. Yeah, for sure. Of course. Um, we'll probably we'll probably just. Well, even now we're probably affecting the purchase price. It's probably going to be like 1.6 billion <laughs> just after after this. So uh, the, the two enthusiasts bump. <laughs> it is, man. You know, uh, we're a wrecking ball in this industry. Uh, I'm not going to wreck them. Damn near kill them. Of <laughs> <laughs> uh, our literally hundreds of listeners, sometimes of which my mom is included, because oh, we're her third favorite podcast. Oh yeah. <laughs> 
Gotta love body. Oh, she's so All lady. right, so the the V four pictures. If you haven't seen them, uh, check asphalt and rubber. Disguised fairings looks like you know it looks like Panigale fairings that have just been kind of tweaked a little bit. Underslung exhaust, which is very strange for me to see because I think that's a really shitty design, and I'm surprised that they continue on pushing that, kicking that can. Um, the V4 cylinder head is the, the way you see it come in the back because obviously the fairings are covering most of the thing up, but you see a, a little bit of the side of the engine and the and the rear cylinder without a shock next to it. Uh, you can tell it's poking out a little bit further than the the Panigale engine would. So it's uh, I'm not saying it's fairly obvious, but I would to me it's obvious that that's part of the deal. And yep. the V, the angle at which this is again, Thank assuming you. that it's a 90 degree V. The angle at which the rear cylinder sets looks like holy crap, a lot more than a uh, of a V than a L, oh which is what the Ducati has been for so long as an L, where the rear cylinders are uh, on nearly vertical and the, the fronts fairly horizontal. And they've tweaked that. You know, the Panigale was a little bit back, but this looks like a lot back. Uh, maybe not quite to KTM, but near it. And that is uh, an interesting sign that they're playing with packaging, and yeah. I think that's a good deal. I want to punch people in the face when they when they try and correct me with L twin. It's an L twin. It's not a V twin. Okay. Shut the front door. Right? Um, uh, do you know what it's like to be a marketing shill? Because you are one. <laughs> That's what that is. Yeah. It's a ninety degree V. A V can be an L if you twist it over, but it. Yeah. I sure. don't know. You're splitting hairs, but yeah, absolutely. You look at that photo. You can tell that V is up in the air. You know, four to five degree angles off of off of perpendicular to the ground that's a really weird way of describing it it's raked all the way back it looks like it's going to be vvv um all the rumors that i've talked all the sources i've talked to say 90 degree v twin or sorry 90 degree v4 uh they also say frameless chassis continues to live on which will be interesting to see um you're looking at that photo you can also tell the and i posted um Photos of the 1299 Panigale with and without fairing, so you can compare the lines and the, the the different mechanical aspects. You can tell it's a different looking swing arm. You can sell like, okay, this is where the Super Quadro L twin V twin engine sticks out in the chassis and where you see it and how it's raked yeah, in position sure. versus what we're seeing here. And those are obviously <laughs> it's different. Weird to look at this. All this this bike is now five years old it's so strange it's so strange because oh, time flies i've been around you know surrounded by this stuff for so long so to see that this has already gone through a full lifetime even though that feels like it was new and it still does they look fairly modern so to see this next thing coming on is is good because they certainly need it and i don't know how what they would do uh, because i think it's a plateau reached with the panigale as far as what would be next with a big v-twin uh, i don't know yeah, I think it's, I mean, we think we've talked about before, it feels like a reaction. It's like a reverse reaction to the World Superbike rules where it once favored V-Twins and then favored, or, yeah, it was inline fours and V-Twins. It favored the V-Twins. We saw Japanese manufacturers building V-Twins to, to deal with those rules. Well, now we're seeing the European manufacturers building V-4s to, to work within the rules that favor four-cylinder engines. Um, that being said, when we go down to Laguna, we will see the last Panigale model, the final edition. The final countdown. Oh, no. You like that? Yeah. You went, You just went to Europe. I did. I went to Europe and back, my friend. <laughs> um, some details may be leaked on that on the internet. I'm kind of, it's kind of weird because they're calling it a Panigale R final edition in this, this alleged document. Uh-huh. Um, some of what I've seen in that document 
I know to be true. So R. I kind of go like, huh, so maybe that's right. But it's we- it feels weird because like Panigale R is an eleven ninety nine, not a twelve ninety nine. And you're not going to go racing with this thing if it's a twelve ninety nine. So are you, you kidding me? But you call it an S. It's not really an S if it costs more than the R model. So it, there's a weird kind of like segmentation naming thing that's going to have to go on. It here. doesn't matter. It'll just be FE final edition. And they did that yeah. with a 900 SS a long time ago. They never did do that with anything else that I can remember. Yeah. But it sounds like it's going to be basically like a poor man's super leger. Hmm. It's going to have uh, some of the motor things, obviously, are not going to be... Uh, it's going to be a die cast motor instead of a sand cast. Yeah. Um, I got to see, by the way, um, the local shop uh, got the their $12.99. Well, I didn't Legera. get to go see that. I wanted to go. And I, I didn't know... I guess I've been out of it. I've been paying attention to uh, electric, straight up. I haven't been paying a lot of attention to this stuff. So Super Legera 1299, oh, a bunch of carbon. And you get wild by the carbon and you don't see. So I'm walking up next to the thing. It's up on the lift. The technician's going through it. I look at the case and I'm like, Jesus, those are sand cast. What yeah. the, what's the story on that? And I guess there's some structural uh, integrity that they needed from sand casting to make it work with the carbon. Yeah. Um, and I didn't, I, you know, this is pretty cool. Very interesting. I thought that those castings were brick shit houses as they were in the vacuole die cast. But see, the sand casting is really of note. And, uh, and so that you understand what's going on here, sand casting is an involved deal where you make these molds and bucks that are hand built and then poured uh, basically into sand. Uh, and it's, it might be a lost wax deal where the wax is made as the negative and then you pack sand around it. And then when you pour the metal into that, uh, into where the, the wax is, then it displaces it and you know, it melts the wax and the metal takes its place. Not really sure in this case. I can't remember. Not. We'll have to look it up. But all all you know is that it ends up with a much more solid. I mean, it's a very good way to do castings if you have the process down right. If you don't have the process down right, it's really easy to get porosities and inclusions um, all throughout the metal, which makes it difficult to seal oil in. So, uh, not that Ducatis are that great at sealing oil in all the time, uh, but I, I don't anticipate this being a problem. It's just really interesting to see after many years of them using the vacuole diecast process, go to that and have to do that in this final Super Legera 1299. It's like, all right, swan song. But that was the big deal with like the. Uh, 1088R cases, the original 1088R cases were sandcast. It was like of note and known that those were the those were the strong ones, and you needed to use those for racing, or else the thing bad things would happen, right? And, yeah. they, and they had a tendency to crack um, between bearing bores, et cetera, et cetera. So anyway, that if that if this thing has that, whatever the final edition, no, it then, doesn't. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, it, so, it's back to diecast. Okay, got it. So there because it's not going to have carbon frame either. It's going no, to have standard frame. And that's what I'd love to talk to the engineers. They're like, okay, why? Why well, does this have to be I don't like think that? that's an engineer thing. I think that's a marketing, marketing thing because okay. you can't come out with a Super Legera nine months ago that's all carbon fiber frame and everything and have it cost $80,000 and then be like, oh, by the way, here's our final edition version. It's just like that other one that you just now got delivery of. That's not going to work, especially at $40,000 or so price point, half the price. Yeah. Sure. Um, You're going to... It's not going to fly. You got to you got to trim the fat somewhere. So yeah, conventional, conventional. We'll still be that frameless chassis design, but it'll be with aluminum pieces, like the Panigale is aluminium. 
aluminium. Say it right, you heathen American. <laughs> um, but I think it's going to have that that cool super bike, a crop of exhaust. Um, oh, that was another thing that the the person couldn't put on the full system that they got with their super Legera twelve ninety nine because it gets rid of the kickstand. <laughs> really? Yeah. Really? Uh, I found that very funny. <laughs> I bet you found that really funny. Because <laughs> real race bikes don't have kickstands. They don't. And that that's what you keep telling me. Really is cool that they were like, nope, if you want to do this, if you want to go all out, if you want your 1299 Super Legera and you want it with the big gnarly exhaust, no more kickstand. I thought that was awesome. I thought it was funny when we were doing the Superbike shootout thing. Uh, Andy comes over and he goes, oh, you know what I like about, I really like having a kickstand on a bike. It makes it a lot easier. It does. Yeah. For track day use, man, That's that was the worst thing after years of riding a Street Fighter which is a great track day tool because it has all the speed of a superbike, but all the comfort of a normal bike. And having a kickstand, I started using my 848. And what a pain in the ass to have a race bike without a, with, with, without a kickstand. It fucking sucks, right? So much easier. Dirt bikes, you know, real dirt bike people are like, it's got to have a kickstarter. Screw kickstands. Like, no, stop it. It's so much better to have kickstands when you're riding If you like bike. to continue doing things the hard way. Yeah. That's what I say. So, that, you know, hence, you know, kickstands up. I think with that, Quentin, we'll just, uh, we'll just move right along and say uh, good day to you, sir. Good talk, and I'll see you out there. All right, right on. I'm ready when you are. The time is on. Chocolate Rain. That should be the intro song. Chocolate Rain. That would be a good song, wouldn't it? Look that up. I haven't heard that in a long time. <laughs> he seems like a weird dude. Yeah. Like, like I, I walk, especially like when I watch this video, I just, just go like, "Why is this nine-year-old singing like he's forty-nine?" Well, that's the reason why it went viral because it was, I yeah. mean, there was the chocolate rain aspect of it, but then there was the, what the fuck am I watching? Yeah, right off the bat. That's good. Yeah. That's really good. Uh, uh. <laughs> Hello, I'm Jensen Beeler. <laughs> right? Right? <laughs> 